This is a Rooster Teeth production. May 7th, 1915. A German U-boat torpedoed a British ocean. Right off the bat. Wow. Doing a Charlotte right off the bat. Okay, that's not... That's unnecessary. May 7th, 1915. A German U-boat torpedoed a British ocean liner, killing almost 1,200 passengers and crew. As the ship sank, tensions rose and set the stage for the U.S. to enter the First World War. Keep that first attempt. I want people to know how he talks to me. Yeah, leave it in. Leave the whole thing in. (laughs) I do want to make a quick amendment, though. It wasn't a Charlotte because I only screwed it up once. I don't understand. This is. Do you want to keep this too? I I I guess. This yeah. season five. No, I do because you're doing a Patrick, which is insulting me not just once, but more than once. Mm-hmm. That's welcome right, back. folks. <laughs> I'm Charlotte. I'm Patrick. Ahoy and welcome aboard. Ship hits the fan. A podcast about some of history's most notable uh-ohs and whoopsies on the high seas. Not so much of an uh-oh or a whoopsie as an intentional uh tactical strike. Uh, I think one. you could call that an upso. Upso? A what? Okay, What's an upso? Shoot, I'm doing That's a not pa- part of the intro. I'm doing a Patrick. <laughs> I just did a Patrick. What's that? Uh, it's when you Yeah, you don't suck. have anything. You're making it up on the flies. Listen. Go. Nice try. It's cute effort. <laughs> Thanks. Oh, that means a lot to hear you say that. I, I didn't write an intro, so we can do this as long as we want. So you didn't even do the bare minimum here, right? The bare minimum is being here. I guess so. Yeah, you're you, okay. Fair I'm enough. like at least two degrees above that. Yeah, yeah. Okay. Um, I was you gonna... did write "We're back." <laughs> <laughs> I'm seeing that. I did. I did write "We're back" with an exclamation point uh, because it's true. Yeah, we're you're back. Listening to us right now. Yeah, that's right. You posted the movie poster from "We're Back." Uh, was it like a dinosaur story or something, something like that? Something like scared that. the hell out of me when I was a kid. The idea of if dinosaurs came back. No, oh, like you mean when they become when they sequence. become scary? Yeah, yeah, that part scared me. I thought that was real. <laughs> the car- uh, okay, isn't that real? Doesn't that really we happen? Have, we don't have time. <laughs> <laughs> That's because finally doing the Lusitania. That's right. Woo! <laughs> One of the heavy hitters. <laughs> That's right. We got we got some real heavy hitters in store for y'all this season. Yeah. We can't reveal too much. No, we, we can't we can't play our cards. All I'll say is well, don't say anything. it involves water. Okay, you can say that. Okay. And our story begins with a man named Samuel Cunard. Cunard, Cunard was born into a British family who fled to Halifax, Nova Scotia. To- oh <laughs> that's that's not a Nova Scotia accent. I'm just I'm uh, doing that's one of the big cities on this show. To avoid religious persecution and probably get ketchup chips. Or all dressed. Yeah. I mean, the, you have so many options from Timmy's. <laughs> Not those, though. All dressed chips? It's a donut shop. I guess they might have bags of chips. I mean, they, it's just like a convenience store, yeah. too. They don't just have donuts at Timmy's. Sort of. Right? No. Don't they have like, like a Dunkin' than like a 7 Eleven? Really? I thought it was like a Wawa. Who cares? It's Canada. (laughs) (laughs) Who's going to care? A moose? Yeah. (laughs) Uh, (laughs) Starting off hot. (laughs) Maybe Uh, poutine. Maybe. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Maybe wanted poutine. So because his family were loyal to the British crown and Canada was still under British rule, he fought in the War of 1812, eventually rising to the rank of captain. 
I feel like that's that's nerd behavior, right? To fight like for le- leaving to another country and then being like, "Well, I'll still fight." Yeah, yeah. yeah I don't. It's that's that's strange. Behavior. Yeah, <laughs> soy, uh, <laughs> soy. <laughs> Using his rank and reputation from his time in the army, he ran for public office as a volunteer fireman and lighthouse commissioner. Cool, both cool. Yeah, that's sick. As he got older, he invested in a number of different businesses, particularly shipping and importing. Okay. Nova Scotia is fairly small. Oh! (laughs) At the time, there were only about a dozen entrepreneurs and businessmen who controlled nearly all of the commerce in the area. We're not clear if uh, Tim Horton was one of those entrepreneurs or businessmen. Cunard was responsible for exporting nearly all of the local timber, as well as the coal and whaling industries. As he grew his import and export business, Cunard realized that whoever had the best ships could dominate the industry. Big brain stuff. Yeah. Wait Uh, a minute. (laughs) Yeah. So he invested a huge portion of his earnings into forming the Halifax Steamboat Company. He spent the next 30 years building steamships, improving designs, and gaining investors. But he had bigger plans. Two steamships. Yeah. Well, more. Yeah, more. but Three steamships. Yes. Cunard went to the UK in 1837 to seek interest and investors for a revolutionary idea. A mail service running between the UK and the US based on transatlantic steamships. People bought in, and even though the ships were expensive, Cunard gained valuable contracts and went all in on building transatlantic steamships. In 1839, he fought a number of other shipbuilding companies to obtain the first British transatlantic steamship contract. Whoa. By the 1870s, Samuel Cunard had passed away. R.I.P. Uh, we'll miss you. Yeah, hopefully you're riding a steamship in the clouds. Or, well, I actually don't know if his religion had heaven. Clouds. <laughs> uh, anyway, he left the company to his sons. Other rival companies had emerged to enter the transatlantic steamship game. Specifically, the Cunard Steamship Company was losing business to ocean liner companies owned by Kaiser Wilhelm II and American millionaire J.P. Morgan. Huh. Yeah. I have a chase card. Kaiser Wilhelm, coming back in a second. <laughs> oh, I bet. Yeah, we'll get, well, we won't get to him, but, you know, things that were done in his name mm-hmm. affected this ship, I guess. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. <laughs> mm-hmm. Cunard was no longer the leader in the industry. In an attempt to revitalize their business and honor their father's legacy, they reached out to their previous contacts in the UK to obtain more funding. The British government agreed to subsidize the building of two superliners that could be converted to battleships as needed. Additionally, they mandated that these ships be as fast as possible while also matching the size of British naval vessels. That's cool. Yeah. We'll pay for your ship, but it must be fast. But we ha- And be able to be converted into a battleship at a moment's notice. Yeah, we'll just need that. Uh, but, you know, to meet these demands, the Cunard Steamship Company built two sister ships. Uh-huh. The Mauritania. Sure. And the Lusitania. Oh. That's the one we're talking about today. Right. Yeah. Is it Tania or Tania? I don't know. I'm going to say. Lusitania. Lusitania. Whatever. It doesn't matter. Lusitania. Leave, leave it all. Leave it all. Okay. It stays. It stays. It stays. The ships were designed by a committee made up of Cunard's executive officers. That's the business, not the man. Because the man was dead. That's long dead. That's right. That's right. Admirals from the Royal Navy and a man named Charles Parsons. You always need one. Yep. Uh, what? <laughs> a, Parsons? a guy named Charles Parsons. Oh, okay, yeah. Charles Parsons owned the Parsons Marine Company where they produced turbine engines. Sure. To meet the Royal Navy's demands for speed, Charles Parsons promised that he could design engines capable of maintaining top speeds of 25 knots. Now, for reference, 
top speed for modern cruise ships, about 30 knots. So pretty fast. That's pretty fast for yeah. the time. Yeah. This is uh, over 100 years ago. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. Uh, the cruise ships, I mean, they often travel at slower speeds, but... Sometimes you got to go faster to go slower. Yeah. Ocean liners had never been outfitted with engines of that size. Okay. This would require turbines capable of 68,000 shaft horsepower. <laughs> so it has to have the power of 68,000 horses shafts. <laughs> Minimum. This is a family show. Minimum. Is- <laughs> I didn't say anything that wasn't family friendly. Go on. The largest engines at the time had been built for battle cruisers, and even those were only capable of 41,000 shaft horsepower. Keep going, keep reading. <laughs> You don't want me to say anything no, about horses' shafts and their power? The you, power behind a horse's shaft is These remarkable. engines would be the largest available and relatively untested. That's true, they would. These larger <laughs> engines called for changes to the overall design. <laughs> Leonard Pesquet, the senior naval architect on the project, mm. proposed a version of the ship with three funnels for venting steam. Mm-hmm. However, after additional boilers were added to power the turbines, a fourth funnel and a fourth propeller... We're added to the design. I mean, I could have told you that. You're not going to get through that with three funnels. You're going to need a fourth. Not even close. Speaking of boilers, there were a ton of them. Each of the ships had 23 double-ended boilers running the length of the ship and two single-ended boilers at the narrow point of the ship's hull. These boilers contained multiple furnaces each for a total of 192 furnaces on board. Wow, think of how many horses you could cook with that. A lot of horses. You're getting a lot of glue. It's yielding a lot of glue on yes, that ship. You, if that were the intended If that's purpose. what you did yes, with horses. Yes, these ships. After reviewing the turbines, propellers, vents, and boilers, it was determined that the ships needed increased stability. They increased the width of the ship by an additional 10 feet on top of her initial 77-foot width. This made her 787 beautiful feet long. But uh, she's often erroneously reported as being 790 feet long. Who would say something like that? And it's so weird that that's like a notable thing. But I did see that all over the place. I believe it. It's like, now you're going to hear that the Lusitania was 790 feet long, but that's crap. Uh Uh-huh. She's 787 feet. It's, I guess it's like somebody saying they're 5'11 and a half. But really they're... And it's like, you're 5'11. Or or you're 5'8, maybe. Yeah, Yeah, in that case. They're they're 787 feet tall. (laughs) Tall. Not 787 and a half. Yeah. At the Navy's request, all machinery was placed below the waterline where they believed it would be safe from gunfire because at the time, submarines were not a known threat. <laughs> well, if we put it below the water, I can't imagine such a machine that would like. Yeah, uh, they, they tried this. It. Uh, they tried this during the Civil War, but they kind of just ended up killing themselves over and over and yeah, over everyone again. Everyone has a good so. laugh about it, and they're yeah. like, it won't be a problem for us. Uh, check out our episode on... The Hunley. Hunley. Yes. The hull was divided into 13 compartments designed to be watertight. These could be flooded to prevent the ship from sinking. However, these doors were shared with some of the coal bunkers. The bunkers stored the massive amounts of coal needed to power the turbines, but in order to transport that coal constantly to the boilers, the doors had to remain open. So, not a not the maybe the best design, but I think what they had at the time. I mean, they they considered it. They put the door there. Yeah. It just, you know, a little miscommunication. I guess in the case of flooding, you could shut it. I guess, but you're not going anywhere. No. The ship was taller than nearly any other ships at the time. It contained six full decks of passenger accommodations above the waterline with an additional three decks below. Wow. Try to stay in the ones above the waterline mm-hmm. if, you, if you can. But those are susceptible to enemy fire. If I go below, I'll be safe. 
No. Oh. You die much faster, in fact. Really? Yes. This is two more decks than what is typically used for passenger ocean liners. She was big. She's real big. Big girl, yeah. And if you want a mental image and you uh, don't have access to the internet because you've downloaded this episode and are now on a cross-country trip in a dead zone. That's true. uh, Picture the Titanic. And that's basically what the Lusitania looks like. Oh. Yeah. Different name on the side. Okay. But it's a similar, for, for, you know, uh, yeah. Uh, okay, yeah, they, I can, I can see doing? it now. She was capable of transporting 552 first-class passengers, 460 second-class passengers, and 1,186 third-class passengers, also known as Irish. You can fit more because they're so thin. Yep, and that's for a potential total. I added that in parentheses, I or Irish. Did. Yes, okay. I know you did. <laughs> I, I figured as much. Uh, which gives us a potential total of 2,198 passengers and 850 crew members. And now, if you don't have access to the internet and you're not sure mm. what an Irish person looks like, uh, what, what do you recommend, Patrick? <laughs> mm. I have a couple zingers, but... <laughs> no, let's hear, let's hear your <laughs> no, zingers. No, it's not for this okay. show. Uh, picture Charlotte, I guess. Yeah, picture Patrick. I'm too much of a, a mutt. Yeah, okay. <laughs> okay. <laughs> the decks were broken up into classes based on their level on the ship. The third-class passengers were given the cabins below the waterline without windows, naturally. Mm. But unlike other ships of the time, their staterooms were actually considered spacious. Oh. Yeah, they had two to six bunk beds per room. Oh. So, okay. I mean... So you get the space, space and you lose the space. It's a full space, yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Third class had its own dining room on deck D and shared restrooms on shelter deck C. Huh. They also had their own smoking area and their own lounge and seating area between the bathrooms and the smoking room. Now so the smoking room. A little you better. Think it had any ventilation? No. Why would you? You don't need to vent it. <laughs> this is the like eight late eighteen hundreds, early nineteen or early nineteen hundreds. You don't need to vent that. It's good for you. Good for consumption. Yeah. And digestion. Well, here's here's a fun fact you're gonna like. Second class had their own deck house and lounge with a promenade around the deck. They also had access to a library for second class ladies. Oh. Who wanted to partake in the ladylike pastimes like books? Okay. I wonder, second class, I feel like that's where I would be. Oh, no, I'm Irish. Yeah, no, you're third class. Okay, never mind. Yeah. I wonder if I would be allowed to read, perchance, uh, just You wouldn't one know page. how. <laughs> yeah. You could look at the book. I don't know how mean, right if now. you didn't have pictures, yeah. <laughs> I'm not allowed to use the office library. <laughs> yeah. uh, second class also had their own smoking room, separate from the third class smoking room. Also, no windows, probably. Even yeah. though they were above uh, sea level. And right, they asked they that, they be, they that they be glued shut with yes. one of the 68,000 horses. Yep. Uh, they had no suites, but the maximum capacity of the second class cabins was four people, despite the cabins being of equal or greater size than third class. Probably mm. because the third class rooms weren't really big enough to fit 12 people. Mm-hmm. But they had their own dining area that included two dining rooms for multiple dinner seatings and a balcony to look at ocean views. It's, it's luxurious. It's a it's a very like fancy yeah, luxury way to travel. I, I just want to say though, ocean views overrated. You know, I've been yeah. on a cruise and past like hour two, you're like, wow, it's the it's, same thing. It's just blue. Yeah. There's, occasionally you'll get some clouds. You yeah, know, yeah. Clouds are cool to look at, but the ocean is. Uh, you it's see not it much once go- you've it, seen it. You know, yeah. you've seen it. You've yeah, seen yeah. it. And if you don't have the internet, just picture the the color blue. Close your eyes. Yeah. Close Pretend your eyes. Ever the sky is upside down. Yeah. And has. Uh, Lo- ripples, lines Trippy. on top of it. If yeah. you don't have the internet, but you do have access to a copy of Avatar The Way of Water. 
a lot of water in that one. You can check that. I out. was, yeah. you know, I have some thoughts I can share with you later. I'm not going to do it right about now. About Avatar? Yeah, about Way of Water. Okay. New thoughts, novel oh, okay. thoughts. Okay. Um, not about Piacon. Okay, thank God. First class or saloon accommodations featured a grand staircase and two elevators connecting the lobbies and multiple decks. They had their own lounge and music room with a vaulted skylight and stained glass windows. The walls of the halls and lobbies were decorated with beautiful mahogany panels. The main lobby featured a giant green marble fireplace, and like the other classes, they had their own smoking room. But they also had a reading and writing room and a private cafe. Oh, very nice. The staterooms spanned five of the six above-water decks. They ranged in size from shared one-room accommodations to various suite arrangements, many with their own decorative themes and styles. Probably dinosaur room. Yeah, space. Star Wars room. Maybe like a, like a, a cowboy room. Cowboy That'd be cool. Room, yeah, cowboy room. Probably a cowboy room. The largest suites were the two regal suites on Promenade Deck B, which featured two bedrooms, a Whoa. private dining room, Whoa. a parlor room, and a bathroom. One such suite was decorated in the style of Versailles. <laughs> Word gets below deck. I heard that there's a cabin made up to look like Versailles. <laughs> uh, Did you know? <laughs> First class dining was served in a giant ballroom with two floors. It was served in a giant bowl. Ball. <laughs> For all first class members. They'd ring a triangle and everyone would come running like hogs. <laughs> the bottom floor could seat 323 people at a time, while the top floor circled the room like a gallery with an opening in the center, seating 147 people. Sounds gorgeous. The walls of the dining room featured plaster molding, gold leaf, and mahogany panels to match the lobbies. Throughout the room, miniature Corinthian style pillars separated the wall panels. The center of the room featured a large dome decorated with frescoes. Seating was fixed and swiveled so the furniture could not shift on the high seas. Despite promotional materials for the Lusitania sent showing regal chairs in the dining room, dining furniture that could be rearranged did not appear in Ocean Liners until 1911. This was a lie. It was a hoax. <laughs> sent out by the company themselves. They knew what they were doing. This is big cunard. They knew that their furniture was going to be fixed and swiveled, and yet they showed regal chairs. That's really messed up. I know. I'm upset. Uh, despite now. all that, this is the greatest tragedy I've ever heard of on an ocean liner. Hang on, because oh. this might be later. The Lusitania began construction August 17th, 1904, in Scotland at John Brown and Company Shipbuilders, thus earning her the nickname The Scottish Ship. Mm. Really clever there. They've got a ship, they they've got a play. What's next for the people of Scotland? <laughs> The entire yard had to be reconfigured for her size. She was huge. <laughs> Speaking of which, though, due to her length, she had to be launched from the yard diagonally, which took up multiple berths. Construction huh. took two years. I came out backwards. Yeah? Yeah. Okay. Back first. <laughs> Cannonball style. Yeah. <laughs> Construction took two years, and she was launched June 7th, 1906. That same year, she earned the Blue Rye Band unofficial aboard for the highest average speed for a passenger ocean liner crossing the Atlantic. The Lusitania is one of 35 ships to hold the title. 13 of those 35 ships were manufactured by Cunard. Damn. Yeah, he knew what he was doing, or they knew what they were doing. Someone knew what they were doing. The Sons knew what they were doing, Sons maybe? of Cunard. Yeah. Nearly all of the ships given this title were designed for dual purposes, ocean liners that could easily be converted for military use. Hmm. This flexibility would come in handy, as the Lusitania was only in service for seven years before World War I began. I've heard of this. This is the Kaiser Wilhelm thing that we were talking about. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> he did World War I. Calling World War I the Kaiser Wilhelm thing. <laughs> what was that um, Kaiser Wilhelm thing? 
The one uh, at the beginning of the last century? World War One. Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. At this time, just the World War, probably, right? Yeah, the, yeah. La- the only World War. Yeah. The war. The war. In 1914, she was requisitioned as an armed merchant cruiser along with her sister ship, Mauritania. Additionally, most ocean liner travel stalled between 1914 to 1915 due to concerns regarding the safety of ocean travel for civilians. Yeah, their seats were swiveling too quickly. I'm, I'm not getting in a ship when the world is at war and much of that is taking place at sea. Personally, I mean, that's I, my personal choice. I think I think that a lot of people probably shared that. But if I've seen anything, uh, the world can be in extreme peril, and people will not compromise their own routines or vacations, especially. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> We've yeah. seen it happen. But you're like vacationing to England. I mean, there were people that were going to no, Florida. No, I understand. <laughs> yeah, I know what you're doing. I, I hear what you're. I get what you're going. I mean, I'm not being subtle. I'm clearly yeah. referencing the COVID nineteen pandemic. Oh, that's what you're doing. <laughs> I thought you were doing a Kaiser Wilhelm thing. I thought you were doing the Ohio uh, Palestine oil spill. East uh, Palestine, East Palestine oil spill. the train derailment. Yeah, that's yeah. what I thought you were doing. No, because of all the people who are still traveling to Ohio for vacation. In what? spite of it. I guess I, I've traveled to Ohio for vacation, so I can't really spit at them. Really? Yeah. Cedar Point. Oh, you know, it's sucks. got a lot of roller coasters. Mm, Rock and still... Roll Hall of Fame. The Cleveland mm. Zoo. No. Still not Cincinnati in. Reds game. No. No. Go see the Cavs. They playing my twins? <laughs> I just might. <laughs> Goddamn. Okay. <laughs> so stupid. Their fears okay. were founded because 1915 brought a new threat to the seas. Submarines. And these are above water crafts no, that can fire below, above the, the water. The exact opposite, below water. Would they above the water be supermarines? No, no. planes. Yeah, n- never mind. Aeroplanes. I'm just playing with the words, with the language <laughs> used by the, the German etymology. Navy. Submarines were initially reserved only for attacks on military vessels, and were not always reliable. While direct hits on vessels produced deadly results, submarines of the time had no radar and very little visibility underwater. So it's kind of like. Like a berserker. This was not the. This is not the <laughs> World War Two like scourge of the seas. The U boat. No. I mean, these are U boats, but they're not that yet. They were just kind of like looking for the light switch in the dark. Yeah, basically. Yeah. And it's like, oh, I think I see something. It's just fire, fire, fire now, now. Uh, and maybe you'd hit it. To attack a vessel, they needed to spot it at the surface, then dive and follow, occasionally resurfacing to make sure they hadn't lost them. That's like if sharks had to close their eyes. Yeah. <laughs> Go up and be like, huh? Was, okay. Okay. Locking in on an intended target, firing torpedoes, and actually hitting that target was considerably harder than it is today. It's probably super it easy today. Very manual. <laughs> Did it all by sight, essentially. In no, no radar. No. Right? It's just like you literally see a ship and then have to point yourself in that direction and fire the torpedo. I mean, it's definitely better than having a long pole on the front. Yep. Again, yeah. check out the, the Hunley episode. The Hunley. Yeah. It's, it's oh, wait, a that wasn't the Hunley. That was the uh... Slocum. No. Yeah. Slocum was a steamship. There's another one where they, yeah. Might have been the Hunley. Maybe it was the Hunley, actually. The Civil War sub. I'm pretty sure it was the Hunley. We've done two early submarine episodes, I think. Haven't we? Well, we talked about the barrel. Yeah. The Revolutionary War era one. No, I don't think so. Well, whatever. Anyway, in November 1914, the British Navy had declared the North Sea a war zone. In response, a few months later, in February of 1915, Germany did the same for the seas around the British Isles and deployed submarines. They stated that all Allied ships in the area would be sunk without warning. However, they did also agree that they would avoid sinking neutral ships. The Lusitania was scheduled to arrive in Liverpool from New York on March 6, 1915, 
only about three weeks after Germany made this declaration. Her crew were given specific instructions on avoiding submarines, and they were offered escorts by military ships. They declined these escorts and proceeded alone to Liverpool. Despite not accepting the escorts, the Lusitania did make changes on board in response to the threat. They did not fly any flags, and some reports say they painted the funnels of the ship to make them less visible to submarines and painted over the name of the ship, although this can't be confirmed. Upon arriving in Liverpool, the ship changed captains. Captain Dow, who had up until this point operated the ship through the war zone, left the ship due to stress and illness. Yeah. It's Snowflake. <laughs> oh, uh, <laughs> soy. Yeah. <laughs> and was replaced by Captain William Turner, who had previously captained both Lusitania and Mauritania before the war. Bootstrap Bill Turner. <laughs> On April 17th, 1915, after restocking supplies and fuel, Lusitania was ready to set out again across the Atlantic with a planned arrival in New York on April 24th. Concerned for travelers, the Imperial German Embassy placed warning ads in 50 American newspapers directly next to advertisements for the Lusitania's return voyage, set to leave New York May 1st. First of all, before I read, I'm going to read this ad, but imagine like an airliner putting out ads in newspapers for individual flights. LA to Austin! 8.15 p.m. Thursday, the 11th. <laughs> and then an ad next to it that's like, I'm going to bomb this plane. Uh, yeah, like, so the warning was like, uh, I'm not really totally clear on, I guess once I hear what the ad says, it yeah, will make it okay. clear. But yeah, it's so funny. Like, 11.48 p.m. No food or drink service will be accommodated for our travelers. You will be seated next to the bathroom in a middle seat. And then if you're, and then again, right next to that yeah. is an ad Hi, of my a name guy is that's like, are Aaron. you flying on 11.42? This, <laughs> yeah. It's going down. I'm going to be shooting at it. <laughs> and there's Letting nothing you know. anyone can do to stop me. <laughs> okay, here's the ad. Notice. Travelers intending to embark on the Atlantic voyage are reminded that a state of war exists between Germany and her allies and Great Britain and her allies, that the zone of war includes the waters adjacent to the British Isles, that in accordance with formal notice given by the Imperial German government, vessels flying the flag of Great Britain or any of her allies are liable to destruction in those waters, and that travelers sailing in the war zone on the ships of Great Britain or her allies do so at their own risk. Imperial German Embassy, Washington, D.C., 22nd April, 1915. Now, the U.S. is not in the war yet, right? Because no. this is kind of what pops off, mm -hmm. the, that whole thing. Yeah. It's just so wild thinking of, like, having a newspaper ad placed by what will become the maybe our greatest uh, enemy <laughs> of the next two massive engagements. Yeah, I mean, this one was a little—World War One was— I mean, it was— Very it, different. It was different, but also someone that would very soon be completely opposite us— yeah. And they they are just like, I'd like to take out a newspaper ad. Yeah. <laughs> and they're doing it from the embassy, embassy in D.C. Yeah. yeah. Despite all of that, people bought tickets for the voyage. People got to see the sea. Yeah. Captain Turner told passengers that the ship was too fast to be attacked by a submarine. However, he was instructed to shut down one of the boiler rooms to reduce costs, mm -hmm. which brought her top speed down to about 22 knots, still five to six knots faster than German subs, though. Yeah. The ship safely reached New York April 24th, restocked supplies, and set out again May 1st. Cool. Six days later, on May 7th, the Lusitania was approaching the British Isles and was scheduled to arrive at the Prince's Landing Stage in Liverpool that afternoon. Cool. 
She carried 1,266 passengers and a crew of 696, for a total of 1,962 people on board, and in a first for this show, she was at two-thirds of her total capacity. Wow. Not four-thirds, <laughs> not eight-thirds, two-thirds. Sixteen-thirds. Uh, yeah. <laughs> that's a... Uh, well, I, you know what? Given the, the turmoil and the context uh, at the time, I can see why. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's like buying a cruise ticket in the middle of COVID. Very cheap, very well, Exactly. They're like, check it out. I can get out there on a princess cruise line right now for $25. It's like, don't, don't, don't do, do that. Don't, don't do, do that. that. You may get <laughs> stuck die. in. <laughs> you also may get just get parked in the Philippines for seven months. Yeah. She was sailing along the coast of Ireland, approximately 11 miles off the coast of County Cork, when she passed in front of U-20, a German U-boat. Presumably, a lot of third-class passengers would have been waving to their relatives as they passed, had they had windows and been above water. <laughs> yes, definitely. People were still waving from land, though. Yeah. The captain of the U-boat, Walter Schwieger, ordered the crew to fire one torpedo. On board the Lusitania, the lookout, Leslie Morton, spotted the torpedo and called it out, but it was too late. That's That must be an amazing shot. Also, like, ha- just passing by a, a German U-boat just feels, Whoa, like, hey. <laughs> feels like a cop reading a newspaper at the side of a highway. And then yeah. they, like, scramble and they drop their coffee. They're yeah. like, woo The torpedo struck the Lusitania on the starboard bow below the wheelhouse. The initial impact threw debris and steel plating up toward the higher decks, knocking one of the lifeboats off the ship. This happens really fast. Mm-hmm. In a matter of seconds, another explosion occurred inside the hull where the torpedo struck the ship and it began to list to starboard. This second explosion has been the subject of concern and conspiracy theories ever since the wreck. Naturally. The crew of the U-boat believed they had potentially struck one of the boilers, causing the catastrophic release of pressure. The crew of the Lusitania believed that the U-boat may have launched more than one torpedo. Still others question the cargo stored in the Lusitania, allegedly a civilian vessel and its potential for combustion. We'll get back to that later. Uh, okay. Regardless of why, six minutes later, a portion of the upper deck had begun to submerge. As the ship rapidly sank, Captain Turner ordered the quartermaster to steer hard toward the Irish coast. But it was too late. The ship was listing too drastically and did not respond to the course correction. To make matters worse, the second explosion had caused the steam pressure to dissipate, stalling the engines. They sent out a distress signal to the coast, but only one minute later, all electrical power on the ship failed. Everyone on board now had to find their way to the lifeboats in total darkness. Not great. The state-of-the-art electric elevators failed, trapping passengers and crew on lower decks. The bulkhead doors designed to be waterproof trapped crew members inside the boiler rooms. Okay, that's uh, horrifying. Mm-hmm. Now listing 15 degrees to starboard, the captain gave the order to abandon ship. However, the angle of the ship made it nearly impossible to board the lifeboats. The starboard boats had swung out too far for passengers to safely board them. On the port side, the boats could be boarded, but they could not be lowered. These boats now hung too close to the side of the ship. The exposed rivets on the side would potentially tear the exterior of the lifeboats. Yikes. Yeah. Even once they had boarded the lifeboats, they were not safe. As the boats hit the water, many of them overturned, dumping passengers into the ocean. Worse still, some of the lifeboats on the upper decks crashed onto balconies or portions of lower decks now exposed because of the angle of the ship. This crushed some passengers and badly injured the passengers who were in the lifeboat. 
The Lusitania had 48 lifeboats, which could have provided ample room for all of those aboard. Another first for this show. Yeah. Enough lifeboats. <laughs> but only six were successfully lowered, all of them from the starboard side. Out of 1,962 people aboard, only about 370 of them made it into lifeboats. That's pretty impressive that you could fit 370 people in six lifeboats. I mean, life yeah, I was, I was thinking about that too. I mean, maybe they some, just probably some may have made it in. They just then the lifeboat exploded on the side of the ship. But yeah. Yes. The captain of the Lusitania remained on deck until a wave swept across the bridge, knocking him into the sea. He found a chair floating in the water and clung to it. He was pulled from the water unconscious three hours later. He survived to recount the events of the sinking and help locate the wreckage after the war. We're going to get to him too. He's not, uh, it seems like he's not really to blame, but they, they sort of maybe tried to make a scapegoat out of him, but it didn't really like. Didn't yeah. take. Yeah. Because the ship had significant forward momentum as she began to sink, she struck the bottom about 330 feet below the surface, causing multiple boilers to explode. As her bow sank completely, the stern rose out of the water before disappearing under the waves. The ship sank in just 18 minutes, 11 nautical miles off the coast of Ireland. Despite their proximity to the coast, it took hours for help to arrive, and many of the survivors succumbed to the cold water. At final count, only 764 of the 1,962 passengers and crew had survived the wreck. That means 1,195 people were lost. Yikes. As the search for survivors continued over the following days, they recovered 289 more bodies. 65 were never claimed or identified. The remaining 885 bodies were just never recovered. Following the wreck, an investigation was opened into the events of the sinking. Captain Turner gave descriptions of the torpedo and the explosions. He also noted that he had been warned about submarines, but believed they had taken every precaution. He had not been informed, however, about the sinking of the Earl of Latham only two days prior, also attacked by U-20. Most uh, of the crew okay. and passengers had escaped, but this information would have at least alerted the Lusitania that U-20 was in the area. Valuable information if they'd had it. Yeah. Additionally, Captain Turner claimed that he had other instructions from the Navy that he had carried out, but were classified. As proceedings continued, many attempted to blame Captain Turner for the wreck, claiming he had not zigzagged enough to avoid submarines and torpedoes. However, other crew members testified that the captain had abided by the most current ordinances and maintained a speed upwards of 18 knots for most of the voyage, fast enough to outrun nearly all submarines. It was discovered in these hearings that the cargo hold of the Lusitania held 5,000 cases of ammunition and rifle casings. Okay. Yeah. While they were initially thought to be far enough away from where the torpedo hit the ship, it is largely believed that the impact caused them to detonate, producing the second explosion. I mean, that that tracks. It checks that out. That makes sense. Yeah. yeah. It also kind of colors the senseless and needless tragedy of a neutral ship being attacked if this neutral ship is carrying uh, armaments. It did still have, was mostly passengers, though, yeah. too. Yeah, no, no, no. 50-50. I know. <laughs> but yeah, it's, yeah. It's just kind of like... It's not a neutral ship. Yeah. yeah. Kind of, you know, blurring the lines. Sure. Push, pushing the envelope just a bit too much. Yeah. I mean, I, I would like it if no, the Germans just had not fired on it. That yeah, would be, that would be, be ideal. Ultimately, Captain Turner was cleared of all charges. Following the proceedings in the UK, the US held their own hearings, but again, Captain Turner was cleared and the cause of the sinking was determined to be the fault of the Imperial German government. 
Naturally, Germany attempted to justify the attack on the Lusitania. They claimed that because she was carrying ammunition, this then made her a vessel of war and not a civilian vessel. U-boats began sinking more and more merchant ocean liners bound for Britain from the US, and in 1917, the German government announced it would conduct full, unrestricted submarine warfare. No ships were safe. Mm. President Woodrow Wilson responded by declaring war on Germany on April 6, 1917. To garner sympathy for the cause, both the UK and US distributed propaganda claiming that the Germans routinely celebrated the sinking of the Lusitania. There is really no record that this was actually the case. Yeah, it's propaganda. Checks know. out. Yeah. I mean, it is a horrible thing, and the Germans did do it, but, you know, why embellish? You know, you want you need to goose the numbers in the draft get or whatever. People, get people the, incensed. Sign-ups. Yeah. yeah. So possibly some of the reason for this is, in 1915, Karl X. Goetz, a sculptor from Munich, produced a series of commemorative medals depicting the sinking of the Lusitania while weighed down with guns and munitions. The reverse of the medal depicted a skeleton selling tickets with the Canard logo and a motto reading, Business Above All, in German. The medals were art pieces, they're, I think, meant as satire, supposedly, but the joke didn't translate. That's weird. The Germans are so known for their, uh, you know, joking. <laughs> Most people don't understand any form of satire. Though. Not at all. Right? Like, it's immediate anger. Yes. Uh, and that's still true today. I would say so almost I can every single time. Absolutely see somebody just being shown that context-free and being like, what? Are you kidding me? Yes, we should go to war. Uh, you think so? Right now? Mm-hmm. Yeah, name a target. Okay. I'm there. British and American journalists obtained photos of the medals, and the following year, the New York Times falsely reported that the medals had been given to the crew of the U-boat that sank the ship. Damn, the New York Times loves getting people into <laughs> they do. wars. It's their favorite thing. Oh my God. It's their favorite thing. Yeah. <laughs> it's, it's, a, it's a storied tradition. The gray lady. Uh, yeah, the paper of record than, yeah. loves uh, spreading, uh, maybe not lying themselves, but maybe also not fact-checking enough. Yeah. You could say. Yeah. British and French sculptors made their own versions of these medals denouncing the Germans. Oh, got them. Many of these and the Goetz originals still remain in museums today. I mean, you look at most comedy and satire before like 1997 and it just makes no sense. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I, was, I was in a museum recently and it was revolutionary uh, era um, satire about England and America, and it was just the most convoluted like, but detailed. Yeah, <laughs> and I was like, ah, oh, yes, humor. It's like reading uh, Gulliver's Travels. It's like it's satire. It's like I'm ten. <laughs> this book is like a hundred years old. Why would I understand the satire in this? You see, this is this is often perceived as a joke because men at the times would wear their hats like so. Oh, okay. That's really good. Okay, that's really that's fun. actually pretty funny. You got me, you got me laughing now. You got uh, me going. Okay, that's tickling me. Now. <laughs> After the war in October of 1935, Captain Turner helped a crew locate the wreckage off the coast of Ireland. Despite multiple efforts in the 30s to locate and salvage pieces of the ship, it was just not salvageable. Also, this didn't help things. The Navy detonated depth charges in and around the wreck as World War II began, destroying it further. Mm -hmm. In 1967, another salvage effort began, but never retrieved any pieces of the ship. Ultimately, the area, the ship, the area around the wreck was named a heritage site under the National Monuments Act. This meant no one would be allowed to move or retrieve contents of the ship, and only exploration licenses would be granted. 
Divers in the 80s and 90s have described the wreck as looking like Swiss cheese. Mm. One of the few pieces remaining are the giant propellers. One is on display in Liverpool, while another was melted down during World War II. Very few divers have successfully explored the wreck. It lies at a depth requiring mixed gases and is said to be littered with depth charges and sea mines. Two world wars were fought in this in this, this channel. spot. Yeah, yeah specifically. Like, this is a bad place. <laughs> There's a bad vibe here. Uh, and the Lusitania is in the middle of it. Yeah. It's just n- not nice. I don't I don't want to ever dive more than 3 feet below the surface of ocean waters. Yeah. I don't like being anywhere where my feet don't touch the ground. Yeah. And as a result, only the most experienced divers even attempt the trip. There's some really cool pictures, though. Oh uh, yeah, I've seen some of them. It's yeah. it's amazing. It looks great. She looks great. She's crumpled up good, a bit. You know, but yeah. Swiss cheese like, but yeah. You know, who among us? Anyway, I, that's the Lusitania. Yeah, biggin. Woo! Thick, huge, wide, and long. Yeah, 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 and tall. Yeah, yeah. Tall gal. I, you know? She's got it all. She's got everything you want. Um, and she's deep. <laughs> she's yeah. got depth. Yeah, yeah. You know, and filled with Irish. <laughs> we assume. We assume. <laughs> yeah. Damn. Yeah. I mean, like, even a wreck so long ago, and so just kind of like not sterilized, but you know, you hear about it so often in like mm-hmm. regular curriculum about. World War One, that to actually hear about people getting trapped and like you know crushed by lifeboats, you go, oh, that's horrifying. That's awful. Yeah, really not great. I would say all Shame around. Shame on you, Kaiser. <laughs> Bad when a ship goes down, isn't it? Yeah. Do we agree? I mean, I have mixed feelings as a podcaster, but as a human, I mean, look, some of the there are some theories. Okay. okay. That maybe the British intentionally put her in danger in order. Remember, what, the, remember, US this was on coming? the voyage from the U.S. to the U.K., not the voyage from the U.K. to the U.S. I do remember. So it's that. full of Americans now. Yeah, there's there are there's a bunch of conspiracy theories around this because that it they did, did it to get the U.S. The US into the, US the war. war. So yeah, there's that that's one of them. But yeah, that's Lusitania. Uh, can I get a foghorn? Yeah, definitely. It's really nice, actually. Warning to all travelers in the Pacific Ocean. Whales have been spotted in the water. I repeat, whales have been spotted in the ocean. Oh my God. If you see a whale, do not ram into it. Okay. In your sailing vessel. <laughs> Who's doing that? Uh, Rick Rodriguez. Oh. Yeah. With uh, that warning out of the way, today's honorable mention goes to Rick Rodriguez. Uh-huh who recently smashed into a whale in the middle of the Pacific Ocean while enjoying a homemade pizza. (laughs) No, dude. What? What? Rodriguez and his three fellow sailors were attempting a voyage from the Galapagos to French Polynesia when they struck a whale. Again, just out there in the middle of the ocean. Kind of like a... What was the the submarine that came up underneath a boat, also just in open water with nothing else around (laughs) for... Hundreds, thousands of miles. Just the inexplicable meeting of two objects. Yeah. Their boat, the 44-foot-long Rain Dancer. Cool name. Went down in just about 15 minutes. A little little less time than the Lusitania. Lusitania, yeah. yeah. Everyone made it safely into a raft, and they, they were able to grab supplies and everything. But mm-hmm. they were now just floating in the water 2,400 miles from the mainland. 
which okay. I think the closest country was Peru. And they were like 1,800 miles from Tahiti. Good Lord. Which is a, some islands. Yes. Not really a target you can aim for. Uh-huh. Luckily, Rodriguez activated a satellite radio beacon before the ship sank, alerting authorities in the U.S. and Peru. That is not what saved him, though. Okay. Yeah. He also had a satellite phone, which he used to call his brother, huh. who then called somebody in another boat uh-huh. who got onto a sailor's WhatsApp group. <laughs> a sailor's WhatsApp? Put out the call and the coordinates, I guess, to just like a ton of sailors, and pretty soon there were just all these <laughs> sailboats headed towards- like Dunkirk. <laughs> where this guy- Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Uh, and wow. eventually, I think they like. I think they were out there for like the rest of that day and into the night, and then like I think that morning, mm-hmm. they saw a, a catamaran. That's and uh, they found and rescued. I mean, that's good. Yeah, um, it was kind of just were... like a crazy, like just that you know the the technology to even have any of this a phone in that a can boat just call is yeah or brother. like internet or whatever is commercially like availably kind of like new ish. Yeah, I mean. I don't really like the satellite know, thing is old, but I don't really know what role the phone would have played because a brother should know when his brother is in danger. Um, I'm sure he was mobilized. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well before he got oh, the yeah. call. No, he, he knew probably, something was wrong, but he, he didn't have the coordinates. He though. knew something. Was, he, yeah, that's right. He knew yeah. the, so without the phone, the search could have taken anywhere between three and four days with a brother's sense. Yeah, but it, <laughs> and it, luckily through technology uh, and we, brother's we have, sense have, amplifying <laughs> tech, yes, we have amplified to, the sense of a brother's empathy. Yeah, they were able to. Um, I want to hear more about this pizza. So, I think they were just, well, they were on like, it was just like him and three other guys and they were on like a sailing voyage from Galapagos to French Polynesia. And they were just having... Yeah, they just brought, I mean, they had food with them. So they just, just they were making pizza. pizzas on the ship and all of a sudden just boom! Do you think they were doing like a... Rammed into a whale. I've heard a lot of people that'll do like a fun like party where people put their own toppings on little pizzas. Or do you think they were okay. sharing one bigger pizza? I think it was one giant square party pizza. <laughs> Cut into squares. <laughs> the length of the rain dancer. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I think, what do you think the whale is just like, what the f- <laughs> Ow. Oh. <laughs> was the whale okay? I don't know. The whale's just gone. The whale swam off. <laughs> it's just a random collision. Yeah. Because it almost felt They like- weren't even like manning the ship, right? They were kind of just like sailing. Like, out. They weren't yeah. like watching anything because they're in the middle of the ocean and all of a sudden a whale is there. And whales are there, though. Yeah. Apparently, it was like the ship was uh, made to be able to survive, like, crashing into a shipping container or anything like that, but a whale was a too whale. much for it. Yeah. I don't understand. I don't know. Okay. That's well, it. See you next week. Goodbye. Oh, you have some names to say. I do. You're right. Please yeah, go the ahead. show, written by Paige Wesley, is yep. edited by Kelly Reynolds yep. with art from Stevie Jude. Yep. I'm Charlotte. I'm Patrick. May your bones bleach in these sands. Bye, everybody. Thank you.